you have your Bibles and get into 2 Corinthians 12 there, I just wanted to remind you that we're do still, we're going to do this all the time, but I just want to remind you because it's fairly new. We'll meet and eat again. Uh, go back there by the logo. We'll find a place to eat. It's fun to do. Uh, if uh, you guys can figure out where you want to go, great, uh, or I'll tell you where you're going because uh, I'm humble, I guess. All right. Um, it was nice, you know, going to Austin Seminary because I took that class in restaurant picking, which was really helpful at times like this. So um, I'm going to do this one a little different just because I, I want to hit the first part last. So uh, we're going to start uh, in verse 14 and then come back and hit 11 through 13 a little bit later. Just to kind of give you a little background here, um, we've just come off of Paul, and he does this throughout this letter quite a bit, uh, talking about why he thinks he's an apostle. It's, it's really he should have, sh should have had one of those shirts. Maybe his congregations weren't as astute at giving him the right shirts and stuff. But he was trying to show that even though he's humble, he's, he's an apostle. And he talked about the, the, the great revelations he's had and all the things that has happened to him. And he also uh, talks a little bit about that experience he had on the road to Damascus. So here's, here's what he's, he's hitting this. He has care for the Corinthians, but as we realize, especially parents know this, and he uses this metaphor that caring for someone does not mean always just giving them things that they like, uh, and so discipline is included. So verse 14, we'll go through the rest of the chapter here. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and send the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. So we're going to look at a couple other texts here today too, even though what we're going to look at this will be in 1 Corinthians a couple times and then an interesting uh, a little portion from Luke. But he's coming for the third time. Uh, so his first visit recorded in Acts 18, uh, beginning of a third missionary journey. The second was this painful visit that he talked about that didn't go well, and obviously he's a little bit concerned that this next one's going to be just as painful. Uh, but notice he's not giving up on them. Um, even though maybe he should, he's, he's not doing that. Paul put it this way, he's kind of summarizing, I, I won't want your possessions, I, I want you. I want your souls, I want you to follow Jesus. That's his main goal here. But he's often done this. This is probably, I think this is like the ninth time he said, I want to... I got desire for you to, to have this intimate, trusting relationship with me as an apostle. And that hadn't quite happened. Uh, he wanted to experience the joy of seeing his potential children in harmony with one another and him. And I think 
that's kind of this metaphor about parents is uh, a good one, you know, because that's what we want for our kids, right? Uh, and Paul's kind of feeling that uh, for his spiritual children here. Uh, we don't know if Paul was married. The scholarship says that he was widowed, uh, but we don't have any idea. Um, a lot of that comes from uh, some of the texts, like in Ephesians 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that he seems to know about relationships pretty well, but maybe he was just a good reader. I don't know. Um, but uh, it does, it's possible. But uh, by the time he becomes an apostle, it appears that maybe uh, some believe, uh, there's some conjecture that his wife had died. But uh, so he sends other people because they're not accepting him. So he sends Titus and this other brother, which may be Timothy, um, to show that, hey, we're all in, in league here. We're all trying to do the same thing for you. Um, he, Timothy served you well. Titus served you well. I did too. You're getting stirred up by people who don't know Jesus. Um, and all, he has all these questions. Paul does this a lot. We call these rhetorical questions. The answer is obviously easy to come out. You know, no, we didn't do these bad things. There's, there's, uh, he says, there's no reason to question my motives. Uh, isn't that the hardest thing in life? when people question your motives. Um, and sometimes the hardest thing in our life is to not question other people's motives. Um, you find this in that, you can get quarrels with people and you don't even disagree. Because, well, you said that because you were thinking this. It's like, okay, uh, I don't know, be careful with that. Especially people you care about, don't assume their motives are bad just because they say something, I don't know, stupid. Uh, it happens, right? Uh, I think all things being equal, maybe we should assume people's motives are good and find out what their motives are by how they act. Um, you know, Jesus, you know, God can see our motives. He knows it. And, and we had that earlier about having confidence in our own motives. We can, we can know that we're trying to do the right thing, but this is rhetorical. I don't care how many Baptists are in here. You don't have to raise your hand. Um, but, you know, how many times has that happened where you know, you've, you've had good motives and you tried to do something for somebody and it ended up backfiring. Maybe you didn't do it well, maybe you came off flippant, or, but it can happen, you know, and, and I think they're attacking his, because if you attack somebody's motive, you're actually attacking their character, so be careful with that. Um, and I think Paul wants them not to do that to him. So, you know, he, he's very intense here. He, he's, he, he, you can see this by the way he writes. You know, he, he says he's been speaking in the sight of God. He realizes he's an apostle. We'll hit that at the end. And uh, you can see why. I mean, this is the guy that saw Jesus. Um, not a lot of people can say that. Uh, so he knows what he's saying is right. Uh, he's speaking in Christ, and he calls them his dear friends, even though they haven't acted all that friendly to him. I hope you have friends that if it doesn't go well that you stay friends and try to reconcile. <laughs> Those will be called good friends, I think. <laughs> sometimes it's hard, right? Uh, and he's trying to do the same thing here. So in verse 20, uh, he kind of gives some interesting stuff here. He gives a, a, a list of things uh, and problems that might be there. He knew that if the Corinthians didn't observe his instructions that he was going to have to rebuke and discipline them. That's always hard. you know. I remember as a young couple, uh, Lynn and I went, we went to seminary, and the kids weren't that old. We went to this class, and we got signed up by a friend in the seminary, and uh, uh, went to this house, and we thought, well, this is, this is a parenting class. It shouldn't be that long. 18 weeks. I didn't remember that when I signed, but I tell you what, was, it was good. I thought it was well done. Um, 
But one of the things they said, and we should already know this, right? But it was one of them. There's different things that we've always used. But um, never spank in anger. That's hard. By the time you get to, they always said, wait 15 to 30 minutes. Well, I don't want to do it now. <laughs> I'm not mad anymore. You know, it, it's harder. You know, discipline is, it needs to be done. And, and of course, in our day and age, you know, I don't know if that's, you, know, you guys, you parents, you, you figure that out, <laughs> how the discipline goes. Uh, I'm not saying that you, but however you discipline it, it's, it's harder when you don't feel angry, isn't it? Um, but it's also better, right? Because you're knowing you're doing it for the right reason. And I think that's Paul here. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't feel the anger. But, you know, we even get that. We, we had that in Hebrews, you know, in, in the Bible study on in the morning. You know, God disciplines the ones he loves. You know, that almost doesn't fit our culture, does it? You know, if you love them, you got to give them what they want. It's like thinking about God and us. When have we ever really figured out? how and what we want. We don't know what we want. You know, I always thought about that. If God asked you for anything you wanted and you told him, you know you got about a 95% chance of screwing it up. Right? What should you say? What do you want for me? And be ready to get it, you know? Ugh. After what happened to Paul and some of these people, I don't know if that would be a courageous thing to say, right? So Paul lists a number of things here, and none of them are good, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility. He's afraid he's going to find this in the church, you know, and churches can get, <sighs> I think, I hope it's this way. Uh, it's kind of like families. If you, you really don't hurt people that you don't care about that much, you know, if you're, I think I get flipped off in Omaha every time I go, um, but I don't know those people. I mean, and I'm an excellent driver. I don't understand. But uh, but if it's somebody you care about, and woe to the one who does such hand gestures and then find out they do know the person. <laughs> I, was, I just wouldn't do it in Denison. It's just not good. Although I'm trying to get that finger changed to the Jesus finger, but uh, I'm not having a lot of success. Um, you know, you go up there and you do that and say, hey, I, it doesn't work. I don't know what's going on. But, uh, but again, you know, it's the people, why is the quarreling and jealousy? I mean, you, you, they probably hurt each other because they cared about each other and they're trying to do so. You know, it happens, but he's trying to, he's hoping this goes away eventually. He's given them the opportunity to repent of this stuff before he comes. So he considers it almost a humiliation to him uh, to have to deal with the sins that they've been dealing with for two, three other letters and two other trips. Um, so, so he, but he obviously knows that divine grace is the key here. He, these people need divine grace. It's, uh, that's what repentance, you, you just don't do this in your own volition. It's part of what you want, but to really repent, really forgive, really reconcile, that's a God thing. Um, this is God's stuff. And, he, you know, the Romans 8 scripture comes to mind. And uh, I think sometimes we use this erroneously, maybe. Um, we know this one, I think, a lot of us, you know, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a great verse. There's a couple things to, to remember about this. Um, those and all of this is a plural. This isn't saying individually everything's going to be good. Um, I don't know. Think of Paul. 
you know, we're not sure how he died, but we think he got executed under Nero in either late 67 or early 68 AD. And he, we've read about the stuff that happened to him. Where's the good? But if you read this as a plural, all things work together for good in God's great plan. If you do those things that God wants you to do, if you follow his purposes that are clearly laid out, it may not go good for you, but he will use it for good. I mean, isn't the cross the quintessential thing here? In some ways, that wasn't good. I mean, it was an execution. And really, what, what benefit did Jesus get? It's the ultimate sacrifice. You say, well, he gets all of us. It's like, well, that's no bargain, right? Don't you think in the beginning of, you know, in the beginning and before and that th you had the Trinity? You know, we used to sing about that. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect love for eternity. How much sin was there? You know, and then he creates and then, yeah, he does what he wants, right? This is kind of an aside, but if God is love, he couldn't have love as part of his character if there wasn't a trinity. Because he would have had to create something to love. That's kind of interesting. Somebody should be writing this stuff down. This is good. I should have put it in here, but I didn't. But, uh, but think about that. You know, so the, 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 the other monotheism, you know, Judaism at its core, Islam, um, you can't really have, you can't say God's character is love because you've got to create to do it. So yeah, that's pretty good stuff. Use that in the Trinity when you talk to each other about the Trinity at lunch. But back to this, God works all things together for good for those who love. If you do things that are God-honoring, you may not see in your lifetime that any benefit, but God will use it. You know, that's what this is about. Don't think this means, well, if I, you know, I'm bad times now and it's going to get better. Maybe they will. Um, but that's not what this verse is talking about. Uh, it's about, it's not about us. It's about everybody else, pretty much. So, so what's he desire? Repentance and the forgiveness of everyone who's fallen into serious sin. And then at the end here, he gives this, uh, this portion about sinning in a certain way. And it's not, he doesn't have in mind just any kind of sin here because he, he talks about it. He's talking about these serious violations of God's law. He was especially concerned with those who had not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 6, and that's the first one we're going to turn to quickly. Uh, it's an interesting, this, you know, obviously written to the same group, um, so it's still a problem apparently. But this is what Paul says here. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that if you sin not so bad, then that's okay. And then if you do these sexual sins, well, then you're really in trouble. No, that, that's not, the, you know, when it comes to our connection with God, any sin uh, separates us. But there's something about these. And another thing to remember is the, the temple of the Holy Spirit here, it's not really talking about Big Macs at this point. Um, although, you know, do your own math, I guess. Um, I, uh, you have to be careful with those. It's really talking about sexual sin here. I'm not saying, you know, go out and get the triple whopper today. I, that's not the point. It's that this is about giving your, you know, the two become one flesh from Genesis 2. And there's something about that that's, then you see it in 
I don't know if you've read the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, but really what it came, you know why Rome fell? They had a good army. They had a good culture. Heck, they had indoor plumbing um, in some places. Um, it was moral. It, it was really a moral failure that eventually destroyed them. And part of it was this stuff. Um, and you see in Romans 1 where Paul uses that as kind of almost a cultural litmus test. If a culture starts seeing non-godly sexuality as normal, it needs to, the church is the one that needs to check that or it can get bad quick. You know? and, and so, you know, do what you want with that. Again, it doesn't mean, in, in, the, in the eyes of God, all sins are, are damning. I realize that. But there's something special. And the other thing that's cool is if you read up before this, he talks about all this bad stuff, and he, but he says, you know, but such were some of you. So, if it, you know, the sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. Uh, there are no unforgivable sins uh, other than just rejecting Jesus outright. So, he kind of hits that here again, looking at this. So, we also have to remember the city of Corinth was known for this. It's a big deal in 1 Corinthians. We don't have the middle letter. In 2 Corinthians, it's big again. He realized that more than a few within the Corinthian church had fallen into these sins. Um, in Corinth, there are multiple temples, and in those temples, one of the main ways to worship was through the services of a temple prostitute. This was part of the religious experience. I don't know why they ha always had bigger crowds than the I'm just kidding. I don't know. It, it seems like there's all kinds of ways to get people to come to worship, I guess, um, I don't think that one should be on the table, but this was a problem. It was part of the culture, uh, and so that's why he hits this. But what's his idea? No, yes, you, you were, could you imagine a 21-year-old girl that had gone through that since she was a little kid because that was what the gods were supposed to be doing, walking into a worship service about Jesus? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Thinking that she's worth nothing and then say, hey, you can repent. God will love you. That's pretty cool. So as we look at this, it's about repentance. It's always about repentance. We, we worry about um, which sin is worse, and so you've got to be so careful with that. Um, there are no greater or lesser sins when it comes to our connection to God. There are greater or lesser consequences, obviously. So what came to mind for me, and I'm not quite sure but why, but this one I've always thought would be good to look at, is Luke 13, because it's it's about repentance, but it's couched in a very interesting way. Um, because you've probably always wondered about that. I mean, I don't know if you have, but why do bad things happen to good people? You know, uh, there was a rabbi that wrote a book about 40 years ago, and people said, well, he, he figured it out. Well, he, he didn't. That's not even the title. He just said, when bad things happen to good people, and really never answers it, at least to my satisfaction. But this is going to, Jesus is going to give your answer today, so this is going to be, this is cool, right? So if you go to Luke 13, there were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What that probably means is these were people who were rebel rousers during a time of sacrifice and they got caught and killed. Um, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So this is the quintessence. Why did these people, they were trying to do things for Yahweh and 
Pilate had him killed. Why does he allow that? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's not the answer I was looking for. It's interesting when Jesus gives us answers we're not looking for. Uh, I think it makes us think a little bit. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. What does he mean by that? Well, let's read on. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Well, wait a minute. Why are we assuming somebody who just was doing a construction project and had an accident were offending God? It's interesting, isn't it? So now we've got this kind of act of a brutal government and not a natural disaster, but an accident. And these people died. You know, why, God? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he uses this. So what's he, what's he talking about here? What does he mean? Why do they have to repent? Why is that such a big deal? I think it comes down to this. You're worried about the wrong things. You know, we had that from Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Uh, the main thing is to remember that the main thing is the main thing. You can quote me on that if you want. The main thing is where you are you with God. So the main thing is to remember that the main thing is the main thing. That, that should be number one. That's kind of what he's getting at here. He doesn't really answer the question, does he? What did God answer Job when he had that question? Who the heck are you? And he goes on for two and a half chapters to kind of reveal who he is. And Job's kind of like, sorry, I ask, you know, who am I? And I think that's it. I mean, it comes down to when things like this happen, they're hard. But does God have a morally sufficient reason for allowing this? I mean, I guess. But again, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then he gives this parable, which I think helps a, a little bit. He told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I don't find any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So it's the idea, where, what are we bearing fruit for is the idea. That's, that's what it means when you fall into the hands of the living God. You know, it changes you. We're supposed to act in the way it happened. Instead of sitting there trying to figure out why God allowed something, where are you with God if God does allow something? Are you right with Him? That's the main thing. And that's what comes back to repentance. So yeah, we have the answer to that. It's maybe not compelling to everybody, but why do bad things happen to good people, well, we're in a fallen world, and God works through that fallen world for His purposes, and sometimes that includes suffering. And I realize when it comes down to our own life, that may not be all that comforting, but it can be, because it points you to Jesus, which is kind of back to what we were talking about before and Paul in 2 Corinthians. So I think Christianity has the answer to why that happens. It's because, of, because we're in a fallen world with an evil things. I always think it's humorous to find 
different atheists use the category of evil. If there's no God, how do you know what's evil and what's good? Isn't that up to the person with the biggest gun? Usually works that way, doesn't it? Back to our regularly scheduled program to verse 11. We're going to hit this true apostle. I just wanted to hit this at the end. He's talked about this before, but in a different way here. And we're going to hit this pretty hard. I have been a fool. Interesting way to start a sentence. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. So he gives a mark of a true apostle, which is interesting, isn't it? And we get this in the Bible. He says, I ought to be commended by you. They knew him. They knew his ministry. They see what he did. He was not at all inferior to these super apostles. And that's sarcastic. You know, super apostles. You know, you're not just an apostle. You're a super apostle. I think Paul could have been a stand-up comedian. I really do. Don't you? I mean, he's, he's pretty sarcastic. He's pretty good at this. Good to see him standing up there getting into those super apostles. Uh, maybe he did. I don't know. But, uh, but what does he, what is he use to prove he's an apostle? Well, he uses other things, and we'll look at those. Signs, wonders, and miracles. And he said that you saw that. So this brings another layer, doesn't it? This whole letter has been, why are you guys not thinking I'm a real apostle? Apparently, he went there and did this stuff. That's pretty cool. I mean, I don't know what they were. We don't really know. We can look in the book of Acts. I mean, he, remember that time, and, and I'll be done probably 11, 33, 34. We'll be good. You'll get out there to wherever we go to eat. Uh, plenty of time. But remember he preached a little long that time? And that guy fell out the window? That's why we did one story here and no windows. Uh, and he goes down, the, the, the guy's dead, and he just raised, I mean, that, that was one I remember. He cast out the demon, that one lady that was annoying him. He did all kinds of wonders as an apostle. And apparently he did that in Corinth, but yet they're still thinking maybe he's not. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you remember Jesus, you know how many miracles he did in his last week? As far as we know, none. Remember what they said when he was on the cross? He saved others. Let's see if he saves himself. It shows you the fickleness of people about miracles and these wonders. It's like you think this would be the thing, right? You get a miracle. I mean, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And everybody's like, yeah, I'm sure they're fist bumping, and this is great. You know, he owed me 10 bucks. Now I'm going to get it back. No, I mean, but, I mean, this had to be wonderful. And what do the Pharisees want to do after that? Not only do they want to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus. Well, that miracle worked well. I mean, it did for the people who were seeking him. That's the key, isn't it? No one can even see the kingdom of God unless they're born from above. Somebody who wasn't, like a Pharisee, I always thought that was a weird thing to do. We're going to kill Jesus, and we're going to kill Lazarus too. Well, it didn't take the first time. I mean, did Jesus just go in there again? Lazarus, come forth again. I don't know what's wrong with these people. 
it's just you see the fickleness. But what's he talking about? The power of the Spirit. We see in Romans 15, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Paul didn't do any miracles. Jesus did them through Paul. To bring the Gentiles to obedience. Ooh, it's for obedience. Not just to get special favors. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That's the idea. But these wonders are here. In 1 Corinthians, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which he has given to me by the working of his power. So I wonder how that worked for him. Remember when we read all that list of the things that happened to him? Three times I had the 40 less one stripes on his back. I was beaten by rods. I was stoned. I was imprisoned. All these things. Did he forget how to do the miracles? You ever wonder that? I do. I mean, it's like, here comes the guy with the thing, just turn it to spaghetti. That wouldn't hurt. Or better yet, turn the whole guy to spaghetti and he won't get hit at all. It's, I think it gives us a little bit of a view of how these miracles work. What are they for? Well, what's the first word? They're signs. Signs. And when you see a stop sign, it tells you to do something, right? You don't, like, run over the sign. Well, some do, but it's a sign. Or if you see a sign, you know, five miles to Chiron, you don't stop at the sign, right? The sign's pointing to something. Well, that's what signs wonders. It's supposed to point to something, the power of God. Because the kingdom of God does not consist of mere talk, but power. These are really true. Jesus did a lot of miracles. In fact, John writes that if we wrote them all down, we couldn't hold all the books. But yet, what happens at the cross? Miracle worker. I'd like one more. <laughs> I always wonder, I think we've talked about this before, and, and I'm not trying to be too flippant with this, but what if that happened? You know, what if instead of going to, I don't know where we'll go, instead of going to El Humidor, I, you know, one of you came up here and, we'll just make it Marcus because he's up here, and he goes, God, give us burritos. And boom, burritos. What's going to happen next week? Come for the burritos, right? <laughs> it's gonna, and, it just, and that happens in John 6 with the bread. You know, they get the bread, and what do they want? They don't want Jesus. They want the bread. And that's the key, folks. If you chase after the miracle, and that's what people did, they're chasing after the sign. They weren't chasing after the person. Got to remember that. The power ultimately is a changed heart. The reason Jesus died on the cross was not so you wouldn't get a cold or not so that you wouldn't ever maybe have to bounce a check or not so you wouldn't have a relationship that would be broken or lose one that you love. He died on the cross so you could have life with him forever. The rest of it is just window dressing, folks. I mean, that's what he's trying to get here. But this is the way God did it. It shows his power. It had to be pretty cool. In fact, the three tie God's saving work under the new covenant to the signs and wonders at the Exodus. And this is so typical. 
If you've ever seen the, I like the Charlton Heston version, but they're, what is the, Cecil B. DeMille did that one, right? Still good to watch, the Ten Commandments. But think about this. You're an Israelite. You're in Egypt. You're a slave. A bunch of plagues come that nobody but God could do. You get out of there. You, you get everything you want. You got a pillar of fire is your GPS. And you get to the foot of this Red Sea, and it parts, and you go through. And what's, of course, when you get on the other end and you're free, the first thing you do is praise God, right? No, they complain. We're hungry. Thanks for that miracle, but... Is there a McDonald's open or something? I mean, come on. You know, it's just interesting. It's just fickle. It, it doesn't work. It, miracles will not work ultimately because our fickle, especially fallen nature, will always look for another one. Always be looking for another one. But it shows, this shows the continuation. Through, through Moses and that covenant, there were miracles. And you didn't see much more after that. They're, they're there. And through now through the apostles, there are miracles. But they don't keep going, and they're not just parlor tricks that you use, and you walk around, and every time one of the Roman soldiers tries to get the apostle, he's just, you know. No, these people died at the hands of the Romans and the Jewish people who didn't want them around. That's what Paul was going to do to those people in Damascus before he met. So what about miracles today? You know, there's different viewpoints on this. I mean, my viewpoint is if God wants to do a miracle, he's darn well got the right to do what he wants. But just be careful. He, you hear stories in places where the Bible's not readily available, dreams and visions, and I have no reason to think those aren't true. Um, and I don't have to any problem with praying for one. But don't expect it. That's, Paul didn't expect it. It's not about that, folks. It's about following Jesus. And if you don't want to think about it any other way, if we have a Savior who died on a cross, it's kind of presumptuous from us to think that we won't have to go through stuff. Paul certainly understood that. What we need is more shirts, right? More shirts that say, I'm humble. Um, and hopefully not, I'm with stupid, because that sometimes happens, right? So you have to be careful with that. So we remember from week 13, to be an apostle of Jesus, this is kind of the two criteria. There are no more apostles. We can't have them. A witness to the resurrected Jesus. We just had that with the, with the uh, children's sermon. And commissioned by Jesus himself. Paul got that together at the same time. Um, but one more reference. And this is, we think, maybe the first Christian hymn ever written. Um, it has a poetic piece to it, especially when you read it in Greek. Um, this is from Paul in his first letter, but it talks about these resurrection appearances, at least some of them. For, he, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's giving this information, this poem, this hymn, this scripture to people he got it from someone else that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and he appeared to cephas peter then to the 12 then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive but some who have fallen asleep 
Then he appeared to James, which would be his brother who wrote the book of James, Jesus' brother. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the last resurrection appearance. There's not been one since. Why? Because we don't need more apostles. Um, For I am the last of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. I'm humble. Because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and the grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, which he's talking about here. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then or it was they, so we preach and so you believe. So Paul, if you ask Paul, it's like, well, I'll prove that you've seen Jesus. He doesn't care if you believe that he saw Jesus or not. As far He knows he saw. And it's the same thing for our faith sometimes. I haven't seen him, although I do like the pictures in that Bible. Um, he's a ripped Jesus. Now, if you're going to go into war with somebody, I want a ripped guy. I don't want Pee Wee Herman. I want Arnold Schwarzenegger. The angels are ripped. This is good stuff, folks. And I don't know if Jesus was ripped. I Probably more ripped than me. I mean, he's got, he was a carpenter for God's sake. He probably had to do some stuff like that. But I I think the idea, I mean, the idea of that picture is he's strong. He's on the cross and his muscles are there and he could get off there. We know that. Not because of his muscles, but because of his nature. But he didn't. For you. So we just, where's our apostles now? Well, our apostles is the Bible, folks. They wrote it. Apostles and associates. Paul wrote this. This is what we're reading. A permission by God saw the risen Lord, not just so he could write down in his journal, saw Jesus today, but for a reason. And remember those words, those haunting words, at least I think. I will show you what you will have to suffer for my name. Paul knew it was coming. But then the weirdo rejoices, you know. And again, I don't think that means he's singing all the time. He just realizes we can all say it, but the main, he, he realizes that the main thing is the main thing. And so no matter what he goes through, God will still be with him. So he points to these different marks of the apostleship earlier. So these signs and things, they were there. They're real. Um, we'll let God figure out when he wants to give them. Uh, but the all, it always points to the things that really show apostleship, the changed lives of the Corinthians, the blameless character of his ministry, his genuine love for the churches, and his sacrificial endurance of suffering. That's what it meant to be an apostle. He performed miracles in many places. He says that. We see that in Acts. He's proclaimed the God. But in Corinth, he had done these things with utmost patience because he's doing these things, and they're still not getting it, at least a lot of them. He demonstrates this divine authorization of his ministry before the Corinthians. While the false apostles had not, they weren't doing any miracles. They weren't getting lives changed. So, and the only way he treated them inferior is he didn't, didn't make them pay anything, which I think is kind of ironic. Remember, he used money he already had to, sup- to pay for his own ministry so the Corinthians wouldn't be burdened. That's what she's talking about toward the end. So, you know, it wasn't an insult. This was a spiritual benefit for them. Um, people do that. We do that. Uh, people have done that for us. Remember when we started, we had that church in Story City, the E-Free Church there, that gave us their soundboard so we could get started in our worship team, you know. 
And then since then, we've given stuff to other churches because God has blessed us. That's the way it works. That's the way the Macedonian church did for Corinth. But what this all comes down to when we look at this is, is when you look at Paul's apostleship, don't focus on the power of the miracles. Focus on the power of a changed heart that receives eternal life from the Savior that knocked him off his horse. You know, one, another person may have had that happen and never believed, but Paul believed, and he changed everything, and he focused on what was real, and we have to do the same thing. Don't aim for miracles. Aim for Jesus and let him throw in what he wants. We really don't know what we need, let alone want. That's why we pray, your will be done. Let us pray. Father, we know you are holy, that you are perfect. We know that each person that believes in you and has eternal life becomes part of your kingdom. It starts now, continues forever with you, with your son, with the spirit. Thank you for forgiving our sins. May we repent uh, daily pointing back to the cross as we have that connection to you. Thank you for being with us, giving us what we need, protecting us from evil. May we always put your kingdom and your son first in our lives. Amen.